Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, El Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor, and today we are talking with Afshin Malavi. Afshin is senior fellow at the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies Foreign Policy Institute and founder of Emerging World Newsletter. Afshin is one of the sharpest observers and analysts of trends in emerging markets, especially on themes related to China and the New Silk Road, South-South trade, global hub cities, new emerging market multinationals, global aviation, the geopolitics of energy, and the intersection of Middle East states and the global economy. As Afshin explains it, his writ is from Bollywood to bond markets. Afshin is a good friend and fellow SICE graduate, a former World Economic Forum young global leader, and the former distinguished journalist reporting from Riyadh, Tehran, and throughout the Middle East and Asia. He is also the author of an outstanding book, Persian Pilgrimages, which was reissued as the soul of Iran, and that's about his travels and reporting in Iran. My conversation with Afshin Malavi begins now. Afshin, welcome to On the Middle East. It's great to be with you, Andrew. Thank you. Great to have you. Let's get into it. Afshin, you sometimes talk about the how am I supposed to make a living question in the Middle East? How am I supposed to make a living goes back to the origins of what we have since called the Arab Spring, which began in Tunisia back in 2010. I think answering that question of how to make a living just got a lot harder after COVID-19. What are the trends you are watching in the economies of the region? Uh, thanks, Andrew. I'm glad you brought that question up uh, to begin with, because you know, originally, how do we make a living or how am I supposed to make a living was the question that Mohamed Bouazizi asked um, as he was uh, rudely pushed out of the municipality building in Sidi Bouzid, Tunisia. Now, Mohamed Bouazizi, as many of your listeners will know, was the Tunisian fruit and vegetable vendor who on December 17, 2010, was confronted by a police officer um, and told he doesn't have the right permit to operate his fruit and vegetable stand. And Mohamed Bouazizi was operating in what you know, economists call the informal economy, right? So um, he was providing for four brothers and sisters and his mother and father from that uh, fruit and vegetable stand. And so he, when he went to the municipality to get his permit back, you know, he had, as, as the saying goes, neither bakhshish, uh, which is a bribe, nor wasta, which is connections. And, and he was pushed out. And, and when he was, got pushed out, he didn't say, give me liberty or give me death. He said, how am I supposed to make living. And that's a question that was salient then um, and is still salient today. When you look at um, youth unemployment in Tunisia, and Egypt, and some of the countries that were hit hardest by the Arab uprisings, um, uh, it, it seems like, uh, you know, we're actually at a worst, we're seeing worse numbers today than we were back then. Uh, broadly speaking, youth unemployment was close to around 30% at the time of the Arab uprisings. Today, they're roughly the same. Tunisia actually has higher youth unemployment numbers today. Egypt has higher youth unemployment numbers today. So that question, how am I supposed to make a living? Look, Mohamed Bouazizi 
was living, as I said, in the informal economy. He wasn't living in the, in the Davos economy, right? So, you know, I remember uh, around the, before the uprisings, there was a lot of talk about Egypt and, and Egypt's economic rise. And there was some truth to that. There was a lot of foreign direct investment flowing into Egypt. Uh, the markets uh, were looking good in Egypt at the time. Um, but I remember there was an Egyptian blogger at the time who said, you know, I wish I lived in macro world because everybody tells me the macro numbers look good. Um, so, so there's plenty of people who don't live in macro world who are not benefiting from some of that growth and some of the growing middle classes um, that, were, that was taking place at the time. Uh, and we're asking themselves, how am I supposed to make a living? And, and then now we have the COVID-19 pandemic, right? So COVID-19 pandemic uh, hit all across the world, not just the Middle East, North Africa region, but it hit particularly the Mohammed Wazizis of the world, the people who don't have zoomable jobs, so to speak. I mean, you know, the, the great dividing line now, Andrew, I think, is between those who have zoomable jobs and those who don't. Um, well, obviously, the Wazizis of the world did not have zoomable jobs, and, and, and they've got hit much harder. The World Bank has noted that uh, we could see another 100 million people um, uh, fall into extreme poverty in the year 2020. Um, and, and by the way, that's the first time in 20 years that uh, poverty numbers uh, have gotten worse, uh, according to World Bank numbers. And so the how am I supposed to make a living question remains, unfortunately, still very salient today. Have you noticed as well that prior to COVID, there seemed to have been a trend, again, starting late December 2018, and I pinpointed in Sudan, and then it picked up in 2019 in Algeria, Lebanon, Iraq, and elsewhere, where you had a, a similar, almost a sequel to what happened in the 2010-2011 era, where there was indeed uh, some, some changes. I mean, Bashir was overthrown, deposed in Sudan. Uh, you had a change in Algeria because of the reaction, the violent reaction to the demonstrations in Iraq. Uh, Prime Minister Abdul Mahdi was replaced eventually by Mustafa al-Qadami, who has initiated a, a reform program. And that trend seems to have been interrupted, though not entirely by COVID. Did, have you noticed that trend as well? And do you think that's a, a fair characterization of what's happening in the region? I, I think you're right, Andrew, and 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 you know I I, I was noticing it as well, and and you put it you know better than uh, than I would um, as kind of a uh, something of a sequel to the Arab uprisings, because um, all across those countries you mentioned and the regions you mentioned, um, there was a, an underlying theme to a lot of these protests, and and the underlying themes revolved around frustrations about lack of jobs, uh, frustrations around corruption. Uh, frustrations around general governance issues. I mean, electricity, electricity shortages, uh, infrastructure bottlenecks, the price of you know, various goods. Uh, and, and one of the things that you notice, and you've noticed this, Andrew, in your travels, I'm sure, all across the Middle East and North Africa region, you know, when you travel across the region, you notice that the aspirations of people that you meet are, are um, universal um, and, and they're not grand. Um, the aspirations are for a decent job, um, decent health care, educational opportunities for their children, a government that does not steal from the people, you know, a government that is not corrupt. Um, and so uh, all across the, the, the region, you're seeing people reacting against that 
uh, and, 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 and it was really in so many ways the fuel that, that, uh, that, that drove many of these protests. Let's talk about the UAE and in particular Dubai. You have spent a lot of time there and as much or more than any other analyst have chronicled its rise as an international hub, illustrative of both urbanization and globalization trends. What I find interesting about Dubai, I don't know if you, you share this as well, is it's one of the few cities in the world, maybe up there with New York and London, uh, there may be some in Asia where I don't travel as much, where you could see just about anyone at any time. And I would find myself when I'm going to Dubai, you know, kind of saying to many people, some in the UAE and some not saying, hey, I'm going to be in Dubai, are you going to be there? And you get a lot of yeses uh, and you see a lot of people. It is truly not just a regional hub, an international hub. I think you're absolutely right. Um, I remember speaking with a uh, Nigerian businessman uh, in Dubai um, and, and he does business in India uh, and, uh, and, and he has an, a partner in India um, that they uh, conduct business with. And, and I said, I asked him, how often do you go to India? And he said, well, I don't really need to go to India much because whenever I need to see my partner, I just say, meet me in Dubai. Right. Um, and this, this meet me in Dubai has become kind of so much a part of the emerging markets world. Um, you mentioned that it's a part of your world. It's certainly part of my world as well. You're, I mean, I, I often find I'll send an email out to, to some friends saying I'm, I'm headed to Dubai. And, and, and you're right. Chances are you'll see people who are passing through. Um, but but it's you know it, I've been looking at Dubai you know for more than a quarter of a century and 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 the reason is I, I went there at a very young age young you know the early part of my career uh, and and I early on I saw this as a cosmopolitan you know uh, nexus city and I like cosmopolitan nexus cities like Hong Kong and Singapore and and Miami that are at the kind of hubs of trade and people and, and, and aviation and tourism. And early on, I saw it. And, but I, I like to joke that uh, I, I knew Dubai before it became Dubai, right? right. It became this right. big international city that everybody knows about. And I think, I think what happens is it's the glitz of Dubai that has, that has turned some people away from taking it seriously um, as, 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 as a place to study. Um, uh, and as a place to look at. And, and I think that's, that's a shame because you, you really, once you peel back be, beyond the Kim Kardashian glitz um, and, and the you know, seven star hotels, you see a really important story in the emerging markets and, and, and a really important story in, in our world. So I often say Dubai has been at the kind of epicenter of three big um, revolutions. Um, the aviation revolution is the first one. Um, you know, it, we take it for granted um, but well, before COVID, we took it for granted, air flights. Uh, but in the year 2019, 4.6 billion passengers took to the air, right? So this is, this is you know, uh, uh, unprecedented numbers, you know, um, uh, and, but it's also, when you think about it, what we were beginning to see was uh, air travel just becoming a normal part of human existence uh, in the Asian middle classes, right? Where, whereas 25 years ago, it would have been not entirely uncommon for a member of the Indian middle class to never get on an airplane. Now it's entirely uncommon, uh, um, for, sorry, for, the, for, for them to have not got on an airplane. So they, there's a lot more Indians flying. 
Um, and Dubai has been at the epicenter of this aviation revolution. Um, in 2014, Dubai International surpassed London Heathrow as the busiest international air hub in the world, and it's not going to look back. Um, you know, I mentioned India uh, because uh, it, when I was looking at UAE um, air uh, hub statistics, I came across an extraordinary one. One out of three international flights that leave India land in the UAE, and one out of three international flights that land in India emanate from the UAE. So, so the UAE, but particularly Dubai, has become India's air gateway to the world. So that's the first one. And then, you know, the second um, revolution that they've been a part of is in many ways is the trade revolution, right? So UAE as, you know, uh, something like 0.1% of the world's population, but they account for about 1.5% of world trade. Now, and that's not because of their oil trade, it's because of uh, Dubai and its role as a global trade hub. Uh, the Jebel Ali port is the ninth busiest container terminal hub in the world. And when you go there, you know, it, it's, it's just, it's kind of like being in Hong Kong's port or Singapore's port. It's just this dizzying um, scene of globalization where you see containers as far as the eye can see. Um, and, 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 it, and, and the UAE accounts for about 2.5% of world sea container trade. For a small country, you know, um, you've heard this, this term little Sparta, Andrew, where the UAE is often considered little Sparta, a small country that punches above its weight militarily. But I, I think the UAE um, punches above its weight geoeconomically. And, and in many ways, that's a more interesting story. And then the third one is the UAE and Dubai as, as part of the emerging markets revolution. Um, uh, what, you know, 85% of the world lives outside of the West. 85% of the world lives in Asia, Africa, Latin America, and the Middle East. Um, and in so many ways, just, I'm glad you brought up your point, that point in the very beginning about you meeting people in Dubai. Dubai has become almost the hotel lobby for the emerging world. Yeah. Everybody goes through there or flows through there or trades there or does some business there or does some tourism there. Uh, so I think, I think we, you know, it, it, when you take Dubai seriously as a, as a nexus city, as a hub city, as a, as a very important piece of our uh, global economy, uh, you'll find a lot of interesting connections there. Do you see post-COVID that Dubai can reclaim that status because aviation trade has been impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, uh, on, on the trade front, I, I think they'll, be, um, they'll, they'll recover quicker um, uh, because the trade has been impacted less by COVID. We've still seen a whole lot of trade, just different things, you know, um, personal protective equipment, you know, and, and a lot of uh, uh, people in the West are buying new computers and televisions and, and, and that sort of things and, and gearing up their homes. Um, uh, and, and by the way, one of the most interesting aspects of uh, the Jebel Ali port is the, the number of containers that are coming from China that flow through there. There was a statistic that noted that 60% of China's uh, flows to Europe, Africa, and the Middle East flow through Dubai. Um, so I, I think that the container shipping and the trade piece will be will recover sooner. The aviation piece and the tourism piece are certainly as goes globalization, as goes aviation, so goes Dubai's recovery. Uh, so I think it's going to take longer. Um, but if, if we, you know, look at the projections uh, of, of the IATA, the International Air Transport Association and others um, that are looking to 20 22, late 2020, 2023, a return to, you know, 2019 levels of travel, well, then it would make sense that we'll see, 
you know, Dubai return as the leading international air hub and Dubai return as a major uh, tourism hub. But it, make no mistake, it, it's, been, it's been painful for them uh, as it has been for all tourism and aviation hubs. We have a major crisis right now with the blocking of the Suez Canal, although as of this morning, it seems like there might be uh, some movement and progress there in getting that, that ship out of the way. Traffic through the canal has rarely been hindered in the past. I, off the top of my head, can't recall any other major uh, incidents of, of this scope. And that old monitor, we, we track the kind of cross-regional, and here I say Africa and the Middle East, and international centrality of the Horn of Africa and the Red Sea and the Suez Canal, as well as the Nile Dam, from both an economic and security perspective. What's your takeaway from what's happening at the Suez now? And, and what do you think it means for Egypt and that part of the world? And would you share the view that the Red Sea, the canal, and all this activity uh, around that area is also a, a critical international hub? Uh, absolutely. And, and you were speaking my language, Andrew, when you said uh, cross-regional, trans-regional. I think we, we sometimes do get um, caught up in the, in the classifications, uh, the legacy classifications. So the term Middle East, I mean, you know this, but the, the Middle East was, is a term that was invented by an American naval strategist writing in a British policy journal in the year 1902. He was looking for a way to describe this landmass between the Far East and Europe. And he called it the Middle East, if I may call it such. And it, the name stuck, right? Um, and, then, and then it's been expanded to the Middle East, North Africa. So we, we say the MENA region, right? But, but you know who doesn't bother with classifications like that? Traders and business people and, and others and who who um, it's and because they see that it's a from Dubai to Mumbai it's a two hour flight from Dubai to Beirut it's a four hour flight um, if you are a, a North African state you are much more geo commercially European uh, than you are uh, Middle Eastern right and so so I, I bring that up just to say that uh, um, uh, the Middle East and North Africa region if we're going to use that term. Um, is very much a part of the global economy uh, because it is so much linked to, to Africa, to Europe, and to Asia in so many ways. And so the Suez Canal crisis is one example of that. Uh, but I think if you were to take the, the Suez Canal and if you were to take the Strait of Hormoz and you would take the Bab al-Mandeb, you know, uh, bordering uh, Djibouti and Yemen, uh, the entryway to the Red Sea, I mean, these are three of the four most important oil choke points in the world. Um, the Suez Canal is one of the more important trade uh, um, throughways of the world, something like 12 or 13% of the world's trade passes through there. Uh, uh, and then, so, so I think we, we have to think about the Middle East and North Africa region as part of this larger uh, global economy. And, and the best way to think about that is to, to think uh, trans-regionally. And let me give you an anecdote on that. Again, it's, it was um, based in, in Dubai. Um, I met a, an, uh, someone who was working for an Indian food conglomerate, uh, and uh, he was uh, uh, telling me, you know, about his business. And I said, well, you know, you're based in Dubai, so what part of the world do you cover from here? And he said, well, I cover Central Asia, the Caucasus, um, Eastern Europe, and South Asia. He didn't say a thing about uh, the, the Middle East and North Africa region. And he said, because, you know, I have uh, good air connections to all those places. 
uh, and, and there's good uh, trade connections to all those places. Um, and I can use uh, the air connectivity and the shipping connectivity. Uh, and so I think, uh, you know, we have to start thinking more like uh, traders and, and less like uh, land-based uh, geopolitical analysts. And, and so I'm glad you brought that up. And, and I, by the way, I do notice that in your coverage at Al Monitor, and I, and I commend you on it, Andrew. Well, thank you. We've got a great team. And one of the advantages of Al Monitor is we rely on people in the region to tell us uh, what's happening there. Let me focus a, a little more on, on Egypt. You know, you had mentioned it earlier and, you know, the Arab Spring started in Tunisia. Then of course, you know, Mubarak is deposed. You had Morsi and you had a period of uh, instability and the Egyptian economy, uh, which you mentioned in the macro sense prior to the Arab Spring looked like there was some progress, then hit another rough patch. But under Sisi, it seems like, and again, according to the macro indicators, there's been some progress. In fact, if you look at the IMF numbers over the last year, June to June, there's 2.8% growth during COVID. I think the only country in the region that's showing positive economic growth and a, and a rare positive growth for any country in the world during COVID. How do you see Egypt's trajectory in terms of these trans-regional trends, international trends, and uh, its, its, its role in the region and its economic situation post-COVID. You know, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, when, we, when you think about um, Egypt, it fits well with the Suez Canal story uh, because, uh, you know, in many ways that some of the, the, roughly the four pillars of the Egyptian economy tend to be uh, Suez Canal, um, which is one of them, uh, remittances, um, uh, tourism and uh, and oil and gas, right? And, and as you know, it's not a major oil and gas producer, but it could become a much more significant one. Uh, and Suez Canal um, receipts have been strong even through COVID. Um, so I think that has been helping uh, Egypt. Uh, remittances have taken a hit uh, and obviously tourism has taken a hit, uh, but Egypt didn't have the kind of heavier lockdowns um, that some of the other countries had. And that's why I think they, they managed to, to grow. I think that the, the key question for Egypt is always going to be, uh, how do you get the, um, uh, the, the, how do you manage to get the macro numbers uh, to trickle down to a broader you know, segment of the population? Uh, as I said, on the eve of the Arab uprisings in 2010, Egypt was the darling of the emerging market set. I remember um, I was in uh, Davos one year uh, and uh, uh, Egypt uh, hosted the last uh, uh, party um, uh, in, in, at Davos that night. And, and uh, Amr Diab, uh, the great Egyptian pop singer, uh, sang uh, at that event. Uh, and it was uh, probably one of the coolest things I've, I've seen because there were maybe 50 people on the dance floor. Um, I think not many people knew who Amr Diab was, but I, I was a huge Amr Diab fan. So. Mm -hmm. So my wife and I were, were dancing the night away um, to Amr Diab, um, uh, and 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 but I remember there was such a uh, such exuberance over Egypt uh, that year uh, in Davos that it's turning a corner and it's going in the right direction and and you know the the stock market was up um, and I think you know the danger is that we could see something uh, like that again when the the numbers uh, are growing and and there's more interest in Egyptian stocks um, and it's not trickling down to a broader segment 
uh, of the population. Uh, and, and, there's, and therein lies the danger. Uh, and, and, and let me just also add that uh, on, on Egypt, it also um, has this extraordinary potential um, to be this bridge between Africa, uh, you know, Mediterranean Africa and, and, uh, and, 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 and Europe. Um, it has a, it has a and, and Sub-Saharan Africa and Europe um, and the broader quote unquote Middle East uh, and Africa. It has this extraordinary potential to be that bridge, but I don't think it has fulfilled that potential. I can't envision from a straight regional security perspective an issue that Egypt doesn't play a, a significant role in, whether it's uh, Libya, whether it's Israeli-Palestinian issues, whether it's counterterrorism. And you just laid out, you know, it, its centrality in terms of the transregional economic and international issues. And then the other interesting uh, piece about Egypt is, is China's role. Um, China's role in as a investor in the Suez Canal economic zone, China's role as an investor in Egypt in general. Uh, when you look at China's flows to the Middle East and North Africa region uh, writ large, um, they tend to, the big numbers tend to be in places that are major oil and gas producers. So Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, uh, Iran, uh, Algeria. Um, but another place that, that has attracted a significant amount of China's interest and investment has been Egypt. It was one of the few that is not, um, uh, what, the only one that's not a major oil and gas producer that, uh, that I dub as part of the $20 billion plus club. And that's the, the club of countries that have received more than $20 billion of projects and or foreign direct investment. I think that we have to distinguish between when China actually does FDI or when China does a construction project in a place. And, and so, so um, you know, China does see that value in Egypt um, beyond its role as a, uh, you know, in, in other places like Saudi Arabia, for example, or, or Iraq, there's a lot of opportunities to just do a lot of construction projects. In Iraq's case, there's a lot of opportunity to get involved in the oil business. But for belt and road planners, they see exactly you know, what you and I just talked about. Uh, Egypt is a very important trans-regional hub for so many uh, of the important regions across the belt and road. Afshin, you wrote an outstanding report on China's role in the region last year for the Hoover Institution. If I have this right, you expected the trade and commercial relationships to deepen. We're seeing that happening. But that China's limited security role will limit its influence. Now, in the past few days, just this past week, Iran and China have signed a 25-year cooperation agreement. The UAE and China have decided to uh, embark on a partnership for vaccine production. And China has even offered a five-point plan for the Arab-Palestinian-Israeli issue. Now, I'm not sure if that's going to go anywhere, but there it is. How do you see this trend in the region? And do you believe that post-COVID, we might see China take an increasingly political or security role in the Middle East? That's the ultimate question, Andrew, isn't it? When, when, because clearly... China's a ge prominent geoeconomic actor in the region, and, and, and in many ways, the most important geoeconomic actor in the region. It's the most important, the top trade partner of uh, you know, a dozen countries across the region. Uh, it is the number one or two or three export destination 
of you know, more than a dozen countries across the region, particularly the oil and gas producers. Um, and, and so it is in increasingly a very important geoeconomic uh, actor in the region. So the, the numbers will just show you that. Now, um, when it comes to uh, security uh, relations, uh, thus far, the bargain has held, uh, particularly if you look at the Gulf Cooperation Council countries, the bargain has held that we will sell a lot of oil and gas to China. We will engage in strategic relationships in oil and gas uh, with China in co-investment in refineries and the like. Um, and, and we will continue to welcome uh, China's investment and or uh, participation in construction projects in, in our world. Um, but at the end of the day, the United States is still the security underwriter uh, of the region. Uh, and, and, and that has suited China just fine. Uh, after all, the oil flows, uh, the, the, the co-investment in projects and refineries show that China is taking a more strategic economic outlook on the region. But why get involved in, in policing Persian Gulf sea lanes, for example, right? Uh, when you don't have to. So that has worked you know, well for China thus far. The question is, and I mentioned in my paper, you know, this, this is China MENA, we're in China MENA 2.0. China MENA 1.0 was the traditional uh, hydrocarbons exports to China, manufactured goods flowing back from China to the Middle East and North Africa region. China MENA 2.0 was is hydrocarbons good hydrocarbons exports to China manufactured goods coming from China to the region, but also much deeper and denser investment ties uh, and trade ties. Um, you know, uh, going you know back to year 2006 when Industrial and Commercial Bank of China initialed its first uh, IPO. The two of the biggest investors were the Kuwait Investment Authority and the Qatar Investment Authority. And in 2010, when the Agricultural Bank of China issued its IPO, two of the biggest investors were those same sovereign wealth funds. And by the way, Andrew, I think Mao Zedong was probably spinning in his grave seeing uh, Agricultural Bank of China, his bank for peasants, which was uh, set up for IPO by Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs. Um, and, and the biggest you know, investors in it were uh, sovereign wealth funds uh, from the Gulf, which in the Mao era, uh, they viewed these countries as part of the American uh, imperial project, you know, um, uh, not, not necessarily countries that, that they, they much preferred aligning themselves with the non-aligned countries like Iraq and Algeria and Syria and Egypt at the time. Anyway, so, so when do we go to MENA China 3.0, uh, i.e. security cooperation? Uh, we're not there yet. It doesn't mean that we'll never get there uh, yet, but the bargain that obtains right now is one that I think we'll, we'll be living with for the next uh, decade. And then let me just touch on the China-Iran question that you brought up. Um, Andrew, you know, I've been, I've been following Iran matters for a long time. Uh, uh, and and uh, uh, one of the things I've learned, uh, particularly when it comes to China-Iran relations is don't follow the MOUs, follow the money. Uh, and when you follow the, the money rather than the MOUs, the memorandums of understanding, uh, you see that uh, China does not take Iran um, as seriously as it takes maybe a Pakistan. China doesn't think twice about pouring $50 billion into Pakistan, but it drags its feet on a lot of its investments in Iran. Um, uh, when you look at the numbers between China and the UAE and China and Saudi Arabia, 
and, and the depth of the relationships, um, it, it doesn't compare to China's relationship with Iran. Um, buying Iranian oil, sometimes people get excited because they say China just bought more a lot, a lot of Iranian oil this past month. Well, in, in the world of you know, oil, that's kind of like dating, buying someone's oil. Uh, it's much more of a serious relationship when you co-invest in refineries, right? And, and that's what China does with Saudi Arabia. And it's what is done with uh, Kuwait uh, um, and others. And so, so I'll believe that this China-Iran relationship is getting deeper um, when, I, when I see it. Um, and one of the reasons why the China-Iran relationship is not getting deeper is not that China doesn't want to get, make this relationship deeper, because China fears US sanctions. They won't, they won't admit it publicly, but when, when you sent $400 billion worth of goods to the United States last year, you don't wanna lose that market. And this was $400 billion worth of goods despite all the talk of tensions and tariffs, et cetera, et cetera. You don't wanna lose that market. Iran has the GDP roughly the size of the state of Ohio, right? So are you gonna lose the market of the United States uh, for Iran if you know that you could be sanctioned much further for some of the things that, that you're doing. So, so it's, 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 I'll believe the China-Iran strategic relationship story uh, on, the, on the economy when I begin to see the numbers and, and I haven't seen the numbers. And there's the last two, the last thing I wanna say on this is if you wanna talk to someone who's frustrated with China, talk to someone from the National Iranian Oil Company. Um, uh, they're very frustrated with China because they, they often say that China is very quick, quick to sign memorandums of understanding but they don't follow through. The, Iran's National Iranian Oil Company has booted uh, a, Ch a China company out of two major gas projects for foot dragging just in the past decade. Uh, so, so again, I think there's, there's uh, less uh, to that story than, than meets the eye. Is the China model gaining in the traction to the region relative to the United States following the COVID-19 pandemic? Or is the United States still in a pretty good place? It's a good question, Andrew. And I think, you know, in, in many ways uh, across the region among, um, you know, elites, uh, if, you could, if you could tell them that uh, we're gonna give you a model in which you can, you know, give your people economic growth uh, and, and grow your middle class, um, but we're still gonna get, you're still going to control the commanding heights, so to speak, of politics. Uh, and then uh, I think there are many political elites in the region that would take that. I'm not so sure um, it, it, ha it has popular appeal on a popular level, um, uh, the, the quote unquote uh, China model. But on a political elite level, uh, I think there is some appeal. Um, economic growth, you become a major force in the global economy, you grow your middle class. Uh, but you still control the commanding heights of the, uh, um, you know, of politics. Uh, uh, but on a popular level, I think that's not the case. I think one of the great services of the past, you know, um, decade or so has been this Arab Youth Survey that has come out. And I know you've written about it in the past, Andrew, as well. Um, this survey of young Arabs between the age of 18 to 24, um, asking them a whole series of questions. Uh, about you know, how they would like to live their lives. And, and, and it's a very hopeful document when you read it, because when you read the, the aspirations of young Arabs between the age of 18 to 24, uh, you see their aspirations are, are you know, universal and, and, and they want uh, decent jobs, they want better education, they want uh, more women's rights, want more human rights, 
they want better governance uh, at the top. Uh, and and, uh, and one of the things, one of the questions they often ask young Arabs is, if you could live anywhere in the world, uh, where would you live? And that's a, that's a revealing question. And, and number one has usually been the UAE among young Arabs. And number two has been the United States and, and others. And I think that's a very revealing question. Afshin, we are just about out of time. And I want you to talk about your latest venture, Emerging World, and your Emerging Markets Daily Newsletter. And let me just say, we all get a lot of incoming newsletters and email, but the Emerging Markets Daily Newsletter is a must open and a must read. I really enjoy it. I always learn from it. Tell us about eWorld and Emerging Markets and about your latest article where you take us back to the origins of the term Emerging Markets. Thank you very much, uh, Andrew. And, and, and if I um, you know, a, a shameless plug, you just have to go to eworld.substack.com uh, or, or just go to Substack and, and look up Emerging World. Um, uh, and, and, and this Emerging Markets Daily that you, that you referred to, I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you're finding it useful. Thank you. Um, I think so many of us who cover uh, the Middle East have found Al Monitor so useful for so many years. So, so um, thank you and all your colleagues for what you do. Uh, let me just tell you kind of the origin of this. Uh, um, you know, when I, I began my career uh, in many ways, um, I, my very first job out of college was working for an English language newspaper in Saudi Arabia. The whole long circuitous story, and maybe we'll save that for another uh, podcast about how I ended up in Saudi Arabia. Um, but one of the things I found when I was covering business in, in Saudi Arabia was my days kind of looked like this. If it, was, if it was Tuesday, it was a South Korean trade delegation. If it was Wednesday, it was a Pakistani banker's reception. If it was Thursday, it was maybe a, a group of uh, Nigerian traders. And, and, and in many ways, I was just seeing the world come to Saudi Arabia, a place that I didn't think was so globalized. Um, uh, uh, but it, it really was in terms of its business environment. And this is the, this is the early to mid-1990s. Um, and I kind of pinned that in my mind. And as I traveled to the region uh, over and over, I, I was based in, in Dubai with the Reuters news agency. I went to Iran, uh, where I was uh, uh, working as a freelancer for the Washington Post and others. Then I began traveling uh, across Asia. And everywhere I went, I was seeing this interconnectivity uh, of the Middle East uh, and Asia and Africa in so many ways. And so I began writing about this theme um, and so the emerging world is, you know, 25 plus years of, of, of uh, looking at this theme and, and finally saying, you know what, I should, I should start regularly posting on this uh, and, uh, and put together an emerging markets daily of sorts. Um, and, and, and my most recent column, I went to the source of the term emerging markets. I, 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 a couple of years ago, I was uh, chatting with Antoine van Achtemel. Um, he is a Dutch economist. Um, who uh, is one of the great emerging markets investors. But back in 1981, he was a official with the International Finance Corporation of the World Bank Group. Uh, and he was pitching a diversified equity fund that would invest in the quote unquote third world, right? And, and in fact, the name of the fund was Third World Equity Fund. And the way he told me the story was that, you know, someone stood up at the event that he spoke at Salomon Brothers in 1981 and said, you know, young man, great idea, horrible name. Um, and so he went back that weekend and he kept thinking and thinking and thinking about a new name for his fund. And he came up with this term emerging markets. And the way he described it, 
uh, the, the, the very, on Monday, he showed it to his boss and his boss, you know, okayed it. And within 30 seconds, this new term had emerged. Uh, and, and in so many ways, that new term was more appropriate, um, but it also unlocked uh, the thinking uh, of so many people saying, no, no, this, maybe these are not just third world. Third world had become, as you know, this slur, you know, it wasn't something that was, uh, you know, looked upon well, even though the origin of the term third world, which I also look at in the, in the column was a French historian who was writing in terms of uh, cold, cold war terms as the, the, the third world being the countries that were non-aligned with either the Soviet camp, which is the second world or the US camp, which is the first world. So I started getting into the origin of names, but the, the emerging markets, uh, that moment in 1981, I think was a really interesting moment that, that led to what we've seen over the past uh, uh, 40 uh, plus years of this extraordinary transformation. And then just lastly, I'll say that I think these are some of the biggest trends that we should all be looking at, uh, the, the rapid urbanization um, that we've seen across the world, the unprecedented connectivity that we've seen across the world and growing middle classes. And in many ways, these are disruption proof trends. Um, uh, they, are, they are so deep and so entrenched um, uh, that they, they are disruption proof. Uh, and, and I think even this, this theme of growing middle classes is gonna, is gonna be slowed by the COVID-19 pandemic but it's not gonna be halted. Um, and so it, sometimes it's useful in a world where we all have geopolitical whiplash uh, to latch onto some trends that are disruption proof like um, demographics and urbanization and connectivity. Afshin, thank you. It's been a great conversation. It's really been a pleasure having you today on, on the Middle East. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you very much. It's been my great pleasure. We will return after this break. I'm Ben Kaspit, I'll monitor veteran columnist reporting from Israel, one of the world's major news and action suppliers of all times, comparing to its tiny size. I've been covering and analyzing the political, diplomatic, and military arenas in Israel for over 34 years. My best-selling biography, The Netanyahu Years, was out two years ago. I covered seven prime ministers, one major war, two intifadas, one prime minister's assassination, two and a half peace treaties, four military operations in Gaza, and it's not letting up anytime soon. I am glad to invite you to On Israel, our brand new podcast, where we will discuss major events in Israel and its surroundings, talk to decision makers, leaders, and analysts, and try to understand the chaos that comes with the territory of Israel and the Middle East. You will never have a dull moment with us. See you soon here on Israel Al Monitor. That was a fantastic conversation just now with Afshin Malavi about trends in the Middle East and emerging markets. I especially liked his reference to Egyptians living in the macro world and the continuing challenge of how the benefits of globalization and development can eventually reach those whom it has passed by until now. And it seems to me that the making a living question, which Afshin talked about in detail, is going to be that much harder following the COVID-19 pandemic. Thanks to our production team of Phil Calabro of El Monitor and Beowulf Roshlin of Two Square Media Productions. 
And to all of you for listening today, we will return next week. And in the meantime, please sign up for this and our other El Monitor podcast on Israel at your favorite podcast platform. Thank you.